What do you get when you mix someone who loves true crime and horror movies with someone who's afraid of their own shadow? Someone like you? Yeah. I'm glad you asked. You get the perfect podcast. We're Carmen and Joanna of Live Laugh Murder Podcast. We're not your typical true crime show. Here at Live Laugh Murder, we tell stories that might be true crime or they might be the plot of a horror film. Can you tell the difference? Don't worry though, because all is revealed by the end. We are true crime sometimes. So check us out. We release bi-weekly on Saturdays. And remember to live, laugh, but never what, Joanna? Murder. Never murder. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Hello and welcome back. Hi, this is the True Crime B&B. And I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And you know that one of us has to be bad and one of us has to be good and usually Bailey is bad. Mm-hmm. And that's why we all hate Bailey. <laughs> I decided I didn't want to get any hate towards me today, so I'm handing the reins to you. So I'm bad. Mm-hmm. My story is bad, but it's not recent bad because I don't know about you, but I still feel just fragile because of everything that's been going on Mm -hmm. and finding cases that are just brutal it's really hard to stomach right now and so I kind of went a little bit into the 60s Mm -hmm. being the bad guy without being a brutal horrific bad guy I think we've both been kind of taking that stance lately so I completely get it this centers around a guy named John Richard Abercrombie and he was a relatively smart guy he had a high IQ But he only finished ninth grade. He had gotten a little bit sidetracked. He had been arrested twice. He was, however, in very good standing with his parole officer, even though he had served time in California for twice being convicted of burglary, once he was convicted in a jury trial, and once he pled guilty. Mm -hmm. But now he lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It seemed to everyone that John Abercrombie, now age 22, had changed his ways. He was now on the straight and narrow. He was working in Tulsa for his father, Elmer Abercrombie, who employed him as a water softener salesman. Okay. For John, this earned about $75 per week, which doesn't sound like much, but that was decent pay in 1964. Oh, yeah. It translates to about $708 a week now. Dang, that's more than I made in pharmacy. (laughs) All right. His mother bragged that he was not wanting for money and that he had $1,000 in his savings, and that amounts to about $9,400 in today money. Mm -hmm. So he was doing okay. Am I correct in assuming that's probably a commission type of role? I don't think it was for him. Okay. I think a lot of sales jobs are, but he worked for his dad, and his dad probably was just like, go sell these and I'll give you $75 a week. That makes sense. Okay. His parents were very proud of how he'd come around to the honest life and that he felt he'd finally found his way after his regrettable missteps in California. Mm -hmm. John and his girlfriend, and her name was Catherine Ann Nance, she was 24. They were heading out of town on May the 8th, 1964, to get married. Basically, they were eloping. Catherine was a receptionist at a Tulsa hospital, and she had taken the week off. Her friends had helped her pack a wedding dress and all their rings. All of her friends and her family knew that she was leaving to get married. Mm-hmm. Their plan was to get married at Miami, Oklahoma, and then head out of state to spend their honeymoon in the area of the Lake of the Ozarks in Osage Beach, Missouri. Okay. And that's a beautiful area. I've heard, yeah. They made it to Missouri by the next day and checked into the Arrowhead Lodge on U.S. Route 54 on Saturday, May 9, 1964. Within an hour after they checked in... The attendant at the lodge noticed that John left the lodge to go fishing. And it sounds as if 
John spent a lot of time fishing on this trip. In fact, John and Catherine never seemed to have found time to actually get married. And from the outside view, it sure seems that John might have developed some really, really cold feet and that he appeared to be doing anything he could to avoid this wedding. When he wasn't fishing, John just spent a fair amount of the rest of this supposed honeymoon driving around. Pretty much every night since they arrived in the Osage Beach area, John Abercrombie had been leaving Catherine in their motel and making nightly rounds along the main roads and the back roads, driving around, you know, breathing the night air, visiting taverns. He was just aimlessly passing the time and driving around. So, I don't want to spoil anything, so shut me up if I am. Have there been any sightings of Catherine this entire time, or is she just assumed to still be in the room? At this point, we just are assuming that Catherine is still in the room. Maybe they're fighting. Maybe she's just like, could be. fuck could, off for the day. Could be that they were fighting, but she will come back up, so she's not dead. Okay, got it. <laughs> As John did this again, just out driving around, he had gone fishing during the day. Mm-hmm. And then at night, he was out in his car, driving up and down the road, stopping at taverns. And on May 12th, he noticed a car up ahead of him in the dimming evening light, turning into the parking lot of what was called the El Dorado Motor Lodge that was 10 miles away from where he and Catherine were staying. Okay. So he was pretty far from where his home base was supposed to be. He followed this car into the parking lot and then sat in his car waiting for them to return. He just wanted to chit-chat, I guess. Okay. The car John was following was driven by Cecil Bybee and his wife Ruth of Hutchinson, Kansas. Cecil Bybee was a traveling salesman for Lowen and Company in Hutchinson, Kansas, which was a printing firm which made decals. He had also previously served a five-year stint as the superintendent of refuse collection in Hutchinson, and he had shocked Hutchinson, Kansas when he got fed up with litter bugs and he filed the first civil complaint against a man named Amos Walden way back in 1951 for throwing paper boxes and packages out of his car window. If you've ever seen Mad Men, they had an episode where Don Draper took his family out into the country for a picnic. They laid out their blanket. They put everything down. They had their picnic. They got up. They threw all their trash on the ground, put the blanket back in the car and left. Mm -hmm. That was what it was like back then. People did not think there was anything wrong with just leaving their trash behind. And I remember in the 70s also there was the ad for Keeping America Beautiful, which was a litter collection and don't litter kind of a campaign. Mm -hmm. And so this guy was a little bit ahead of his time as far as being sick of people doing that stuff. So he was the one of the front runners who came in and said, all right, guys, I shouldn't have to tell you this, but... (laughs) That's right. Cecil took his job seriously. He was Mm civic-minded. He cared about the public highways. He cared about nature. And he cared about people doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So he was a stand-up guy. Since he owned property in Kansas, even after he and Ruth had moved down to Florida following his years of public service, they frequently returned to visit the area in Kansas near Hutchinson. Ruth was 51 years old. She was not employed. And because she just loved to travel and she loved spending time with her husband, she frequently accompanied him on his business trips. They, in a sense, had two homes. They officially lived in Florida, but they were in Hutchinson often enough that they kind of lived there too. Okay. Cecil worked out of a mobile home when he was doing his sales routes. He would move the mobile home regionally, and then he would use that as a base of operations Mm -hmm. to drive around and visit other places to sell his decals. But on this occasion, Ruth and Cecil were in the area to attend a real estate conference 
So they made the unusual decision to stay in a motel instead of taking the mobile home. Okay, that makes sense. So the Bybees, just arriving in town and looking forward to their week of the conference, as well as some R&R at the Lake of the Ozarks, went into the motel office, checked in about 9 p.m. They got their keys, returned to their car, pulled their car around to their room, and started to unload their luggage from the car. John had sat outside the motel in his car until they returned, and when they came back out, he pulled his car in behind them and they moved to the spot in front of their room. John, who was a water softener salesman, Mm -hmm. he could speak to anyone, so he engaged the couple in friendly conversation. And that wouldn't seem weird. They don't know he's followed them. They don't know that he's not staying there, too. Just somebody else that says, oh, look, you're out of town, I'm from out of town. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly, without provocation, while they're just having this friendly conversation, John inexplicably pulled a revolver that he had purchased at a tavern near Eldon, Missouri, just the day before, pulls it out, and he's holding this gun. Well, Cecil Bybee, like John, is used to talking to strangers. He's not easily rattled, Uh was understandably alarmed, and he quickly reached forward to grab the gun. He's like, you fool, what do you think you're doing? And as the two men struggled over the gun... Abercrombie shot Cecil. Ruth screamed, you killed my husband, and ran towards John. And she wanted to check on her husband. She wanted to get this gun away from this crazy person. Mm -hmm. So then Ruth starts struggling with John, and Abercrombie shot Ruth too. So both of them now are lying on the ground. As Cecil lay already dead on the ground, and Ruth lay dying next to him, John Abercrombie jumped back in his car and sped out of the parking lot and down the road. The motel operator had come outside after he heard the gunshots and he saw John's car leaving the lot, so he had a description of it. Mm -hmm. He called police, gave them the information about the car. John, meanwhile, had driven the 10 miles back to pick up Catherine at the Arrowhead Lodge. He went in the room, changed clothes, the two of them got back in the car. I have no idea if he told Catherine what was going on, but he probably just told her he wanted to go out for a drive. Either that or, oh, I got in a fight with somebody and, oh, we got to get out of here because they might charge me with it. That may be what happened. Hmm. But they didn't pack all their stuff and get in the car. They just got in the car to go for a drive. Oh, okay. Once they got back in the car, John decided it was a good idea to go cruise past the murder scene to see what was going on over there. And as they did, a deputy recognized that their car matched the description that was given by the motel proprietor and they were pulled over. The deputy ordered them both out of the car at gunpoint. So he's not messing around. He's Mm -hmm. like, I hear you're the one. Get out of the car with your hands up. The deputy sheriff who pulled them over noted that John was now extremely quiet and polite. He said if they didn't have a witness, he'd have never believed that John Abercrombie could have been the guy that would do something like this. Yeah, they never seem like it, do they? Nope. But when they searched the car, a thirty-eight revolver was found on the floor with five spent bullets and one misfired round. Ballistics tests confirmed that this was the gun that had killed the Bybees. Obviously, that wasn't immediately known. It took a day or two, Mm -hmm. but the sheriff also found a bloody shirt, a bloody sweater, and a bloody jacket in their room at the Arrowhead Lodge, where all of their luggage still was. So John Abercrombie was arrested, and Catherine was questioned as well to rule out her having any part in this murder. She was released on Thursday morning, though, very confused, and she had been abandoned in the worst way, far from home, No idea what's going on. John at first told law enforcement that Catherine was his wife, but that was probably because he thought it would look better for him if they were honeymooners than to look like unmarried people staying in a motel together because it was the 60s and that wasn't cool. Yeah, and also we're honeymooners. That gives you a reason to be in the area versus 
if you just specifically came to this one spot, ended up killing someone, that seems like, oh, yeah. you just happened to be here. And Exactly. Although he was still pretty far from where he was supposed to be. Yeah. But later, even though he had originally said that they were married, he and Catherine had both later told the sheriff that they were actually not married. She called her family and friends back in Tulsa to break the news to them about what had happened, even though she probably wasn't at all sure what had happened. Yeah. She still had her gown. She still had her ring, but seemed to be baffled about what was going on. She was already questioning how he seemed to just be out and running around ever since they had arrived and why they had actually not stopped in Miami, Oklahoma to get married. She didn't understand the horrific and cruel crime he had just committed before he casually went and picked her up. She didn't know how she was going to get back home. She didn't know why John had taken what was supposed to be their celebration of marriage and thrown it all in the trash along with the lives of two complete strangers. Yeah, but some part of her's got to be, like, a little bit relieved she didn't go through with that marriage. Yeah. What a nightmare that would be. At this point, she can just pick up and, and cut and ties. And be like, adios. <laughs> yeah. When she called her relatives, Catherine said to her relatives on the phone, he just doesn't have any feelings about it. He just doesn't care. And I think she's referring to the murders, mm-hmm. but also the fact of him blowing up their entire supposed plans to get married. He just was completely emotionless about the whole thing. Abercrombie told the sheriff that he acted completely on impulse in killing the Bybees. He put it simply, I just had to kill somebody, that's all. But nine days after the murder, Catherine went to the Greene County Jail, where John was being held, to visit him. Citing unspecified new evidence in the case, Catherine was then arrested and charged as an accessory in the murders of Cecil and Ruth Bybee. John was held on remand... (laughs) Right. The sheriff arrested her, but he wouldn't give any information about what new evidence he was using. John was held on remand until his trial on two counts of first-degree murder, but Catherine was able to bond out. So she was arrested, she was out on bail, and later the charges against her were dismissed. Okay. Abercrombie was committed twice for psychiatric evaluation, but he was found competent to stand trial. In May 1965, almost a year Mm -hmm. after the murders, John Abercrombie pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to two life terms at the Jefferson City State Penitentiary, which was decommissioned in 2004. And a note about that, that prison originally opened in 1836, and it closed in 2004. So it's a really cool place to go for spooky ghost tours and historical Mm. tours, if you like things like that. So that's the Jefferson City State Penitentiary. I'll have to look into that. In an appeal in 1968, Abercrombie made claims that while in the county jail, he had been whipped, beaten, placed in a hole, and that a dog had been unleashed upon him. Also, it turned out that the reason Catherine had been held had apparently been a manipulation to get Abercrombie to talk. So I guess she came to visit him in the jail, they locked her up, and they told Abercrombie that she would stay in lockup until he gave a confession. So he apparently gave said confession, and Catherine was released, and the charges were dropped. Oh, so it actually worked. It did work. Oh, that surprises me. At least we know he cares a little bit about her, I guess. Yeah, I think he did. I think he just was freaked out about getting married. Yeah. But the judgment was upheld because he had pled guilty more than a year after all those alleged events had taken place and after the supposedly tainted confession. So if you gave a tainted confession a year ago and the first time you say, well, that was not real, Mm -hmm. is... Three years after your trial, you still pled guilty, dude. So. Yeah, sorry. So this story 
I know that there's not a lot of background information about the Bybies or about Catherine. Mm -hmm. A little bit about John, but he's the bad guy, so who cares? This story spoke to me because of the way the Bybies, in their 50s, still loved each other Mm -hmm. and just like spending time together. You know, they've been together a long time. They just continuously drove all over the country together. And by a complete fluke, they ran across this guy who was not even supposed to be at that motel. Yeah. I mean, if they had arrived at the motel two minutes earlier or two minutes later, he wouldn't ever have seen them. Mm-hmm. And this guy, who had no reason to show up where they were, happened to be going through some freak out or cold feet or anxiety about getting married or something. Just like on a downward spiral where you self-sabotage, but he did it in the worst way possible, it sounds like. Yeah, he took other people down instead. Like most people, you'll just push away the person that you're scared you're getting too close to. But this guy decided to go on a completely fucked up route with this. Yeah, and if I, you have that nagging something is wrong in my life feeling, you don't go out and kill strangers to address that problem. That's when you sit down with the person you were willing to spend your life with and explain, hey, I'm not ready for this. And then you fucking go home. Like, it's not a big deal. And then now it's a big deal. It might have been a bigger deal to Catherine, but she would rather that than him go out and murder strangers. Yeah, for sure. He just casually killed two people he had Mm -hmm. never seen before in his life. In these cases where them being on the road is the norm, you know, that's what they do for a living, basically. But where they change their routine just a little bit, yeah. And that is what happens to get them killed or have yeah. them run across this person. That's right. And it's just terrifying. The That's same- how people get OCD, right? They're because they're like, if I change anything, something bad will happen. Just total circumstance. It's just the Bybees were victims of circumstance. They shouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. Well, they should have been there. He shouldn't have been there. He just casually killed them. He had no reason at all except I just needed to kill somebody. Mm-hmm. So I searched for any further information about his sentence. Whether he was ever released, I didn't find anything. He was born around 1942, so he could still be alive. He'd be around 80. Yeah, it's not impossible. If he is still alive, I hope his ass is still locked in prison because a snake like that can never be trusted. If you didn't have a reason to do this, you don't have a reason not to do this either, you know? Well, I wonder when they did, like, the psych evals. It was between the time he was arrested and his... So I wonder if they found anything, not necessarily that he wasn't sane, because obviously they ruled that he was able to stand trial, but I wonder if they found anything, or if it's like, he just snapped and did this, and then... There was no information that I could find that gave any kind of evaluation of him. All I know is that he did go to trial, Mm -hmm. and then he pled guilty. And what he did to Catherine. She was so excited. She really thought they were getting married. She loved him. She packed her little wedding bag, packed up her special dress, gathered all her friends. She shared the exciting news. They all expected she was going to come home the next week married. And then rather than follow through on marrying her, he just randomly killed two people who actually understood the meaning of commitment. They loved and were committed to each other. He was scared to do it. And I don't know. I mean, I'm just totally guessing that that was the no, reasoning. But people valid. do weird things when they are anxious about something. Or it's, you know, on a lesser scale, when you go through a breakup and you see, like, happy couple, all mushy-gushy, where usually you'd be like, oh, that's cute. But then you're like, fuck them so hard. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I guess that could be something. To, maybe it triggered him because they were so together and they loved being together. They had it figured together. out and he clearly did not. That might have something to do with Again, it. Again, this is all just... That's pretty profound thought, though. It very well could be something like that. 
I did also try to find out whether Catherine ever found someone and was able to get married and have a family because Mm -hmm. obviously it was something that she wanted in her life. But it's a more common name than you might think. And Mm -hmm. I have no way of knowing whether she left the state after this humiliation that she went through. Mm -hmm. But I just want us to remember Cecil and Ruth Bybee today. I did find them on Find a Grave, but there were no children listed. But that doesn't mean they didn't have children. It just means that no one has added their children. Yeah. So I can't be certain whether they left adult children when they were murdered. But if they did, I send all good vibes to the Bybee descendants. Mm -hmm. They were gone much too soon. Did you find any pictures of them on there? I couldn't find any of them. I did find some of John Abercrombie. And he just looks like a normal guy, but, you know, Mm -hmm. most of them do. Yep. What do you have for our upper story this week? Well, I don't even know what to call this one. I have a home invasion story from a town called Penhold in Alberta, Canada. Okay. And we don't know the name of the victims at all, and we don't know the name of the intruder at all. Okay. That has not been released to the public. How old is this story? It starts July 30th, 2021. Oh, okay. On July 30th, 2021, a Friday... A married couple in Penhold, Alberta, left their 17-year-old son and 13-year-old daughter home alone in order to go camping nearby. So they weren't going to have any cell phone service out where they were going camping, but they're like, you know, our son's almost an adult. He can watch our daughter for the weekend, and then we'll check in every night. We'll drive up to the cell tower, just say goodnight, and then we'll go back to the campsite. How big an area is Penhold? It's very rural. So I think they said there's a population of like 3,000, but it's over a lot of land. Right. So where their son and daughter were going to be in the house while they were gone, they Mm -hmm. were probably fairly remote. Yes, but they did also have, since it was in a rural property, they had the main house and then a fence around that. And then on the back of the property, they also had a a workhouse, like a workstation that they could rent out, and they had permanent residents that were living there and running their business out of it. Okay. So they were really good friends with those people that lived on the back of the residence, and they let them know, hey, we're going out of town. I'm giving my kids your number. If they need anything, just come check on them. Okay, good. So they had everything covered. They weren't worried about it at all. 4.30 p.m. that Friday, they'd already arrived at their campsite, And as the kids are home alone, someone began loudly beating on the front door of the home, just screaming belligerently, wanting in. And so, of course, the kids decided to call the neighbors at the back and said they can get here first. We're going to call them. And those neighbors came over to confront this guy and say, there's two kids in there. You need to go away. We're calling the police and we're going to wait for them. Mm -hmm. He started to get even more belligerent and fight back against them. So the two neighbors. One guy? It was one guy, but he was high on methamphetamine. So he was... Okay. Unstoppable. Yeah, so he was Superman. Yeah. They ended up having to call the police and then hold this man down on the ground until they could arrive to arrest him. And that actually, from the time they called, took 45 minutes for them to get out there to begin with and get him. Once the RCMP arrived, they realized the man was high on drugs, specifically methamphetamine, and had formerly lived at this property five years prior. So they were like, oh, it's just a mistake and he didn't know where he was. Understandable. We're going to take him, give him a warning essentially, and drop him back off to his current residence and then tell him not to come back here anymore next time you're getting arrested for good. Mm. Yep. I don't like the sound of that. Yep. That was about 4.30 p.m. on Friday. Around 10 p.m. that evening, the couple who's out at the campsite without cell phone service decides to drive over to the cell phone tower 
and call their kids and they were alarmed to say the least like oh yeah we had to call the police there's a man trying to break into our house today but it's taken care of they took him away and I don't think they knew at this point that he had not been taken into custody the police just right. made that decision after speaking with him and then took him home they drove him down the road and set him free yeah. basically it's a, yeah exactly the parents were concerned, but the family friend from the back of the yard had told them, it's not a big deal, nothing substantial happened. He was a little aggressive, but he calmed down once the police got here. But just in case, I'm going to stay overnight in your house with the kids, and you're safe to come back tomorrow, you can. And okay. they said, okay, great, we'll talk to you in the morning. Is this a man or a woman staying with them now? There's a man and a woman that live at the back property. Both but, of them are staying? But the woman is staying with the kids. Okay. The next morning, so this is Saturday 12 hours after the initial incident happened at 4.30 p.m., 4.30 a.m., the house was awoken to the same persistent beating on the front door. This time, the man was using a concrete planter that had been on the porch and breaking through the door. Like, he was making progress into the home. Was he there on foot? Did it just take him 12 hours to walk from where they dropped him off to where he came back here? He was on foot, so I don't know how long it took. They don't, didn't give the he probably current lives, address, or if he even has a house. He lives like, you know, 20 miles away, and he just walked that whole distance. Well, they said the first time they took him to a motel when they dropped him off. So I don't know if he was, like, staying with a friend there, or if he just didn't want to give them his address, or what was going on, or if that was his permanent residence, or if he didn't have a permanent residence. Okay. Lots so of questions. question mark. Yeah, lots of questions. The kids and the woman wake up to this guy breaking through the front door with a concrete planter, and they immediately called the RCMP again and said, this guy is back. You guys need to take him into custody. We're scared. And they responded quickly. They got there maybe 10 minutes later. I think they happened to have somebody in the area just in case. Mm-hmm. Because they had just been there 12 hours earlier and they knew this guy was going to be a problem. Right, but at least they should be able to hold him this time because he's at least made property damage this time. You think? Oh boy. They arrived a couple minutes later and they arrested him on mischief charges. But they decided not to take him into custody and instead gave him a court date a month out to attend and then let him go again. I don't think he's thinking that far down the road, guys. I think he's thinking, I want in this house right now. Yeah. He doesn't care what's happening in a month. Especially if he's still fucking high. I get it. Maybe it's still wearing off and he's still out of it. But at that point, you take him in until he's sobered up. I don't know anything about methamphetamine. How long does that stay? I don't know. How long are you impaired from that? It probably depends on your usage, the dosage you take, and how often you're using it. Yeah, Because like alcohol, you can get a little bit of tolerance built up probably well i just mean if you get high on methamphetamine how long would you expect for that to last before you aren't high anymore that's a good question i honestly couldn't tell you do you want to google it real fast on the rehab website that i just searched they said a meth high often lasts for four to 16 hours so it's very possible he took the hit went to the house got dropped off home went back to the house and is still fucking high okay yeah that makes more sense yeah Okay. But, as I said, they just gave him the warning and said, well, good day, sir. (laughs) Be on your best behavior and let him go. Yeah. After hearing about the second entry attempt, the couple at the campsite decided, that's it, we're coming home right now and fuck this camping trip. (laughs) Yeah, this is obviously not meant to happen. This is going to be a problem. Seriously. They arrived back home to pick up their daughter, and then their son, the 17-year-old, decided to go across town and stay with his friend for the rest of the weekend, because they didn't know if this guy was coming back. So they said, all right, everybody's uncomfortable being in this house right now. 
We're going to pick up our daughter, let our son go stay at his friends, and we're going back to the campsite. We're just going to get away, forget about this for the weekend, and deal with it when we come back home. And come back to a destroyed house, probably. Probably, but better than coming home to two dead kids, you know? Absolutely. And your dead neighbors. Yes. They went, enjoyed the rest of their camping trip as much as they probably could, knowing everything going on. Mm Mm-hmm. And when the three returned home on Monday, they noticed right away that their fence was open and they got a bad feeling. They're like, well, I bet we know who did that. Yeah, for sure. And also when the father went around back to check out if anything was broken, all of the screens in the back had been torn off and were laying on the ground. However, when he tried to open the window from outside, it was locked. So the father went back to the car and told his wife and daughter to wait in there. It was a camper, an RV that they were in. Wait out here. I'm going to take my shotgun and just clear the place. Make sure that nobody in there is going to harm us. Before he entered, he decided to go to the neighbors in the back and let them know, hey, I'm going in the house right now. If you guys want to come with me, you can. I'm just letting you know if you hear gunshots, you need to call the police. Just a heads up. And those two neighbors actually decided to go out with him to help sweep the house so that if something happened, they would know right away that he was not okay. Yeah. And they didn't have any weapons, so even though he had his shotgun, they grabbed what they had available at the time, and this made me giggle. They brought with them a rake and an extendable feather duster <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> to offer assistance. Didn't we have an episode where somebody grabbed a whale tusk? A narwhale tusk. It was a narwhale tusk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's funny, though, in hindsight. When you are panicked and scared, the things you will grab and then afterwards be like, what was this going to do? <laughs> Come Why on, Blue I Ball. <laughs> exactly. Actually, Blue Ball could do some damage. He could do, with the weighted part mm-hmm. of the other one? Yeah. Anyway, now armed, the homeowner entered the home. I'm going to get you with my feather duster. And it sounds like they kind of separate. Like, you go that way, y'all go this way, vice versa. Don't split up, guys. Well, it actually kind of worked out the best it could have, I think, by splitting up. He found the same man as before, who had been arrested or, or at least taken away from their house with the police, sleeping in his bedroom. But he didn't know it was him. But, I mean, it's just later confirmed. I don't think he necessarily knew that was the guy, but I think with context clues, that's got to be the guy. Yeah. So he walks in, sees this guy sleeping on his bed, and he immediately starts screaming at him, yelling at him to get on the floor. I'm calling the police. He said he was, like, almost in a daze where he wasn't really listening to him at all. He just got up and started walking towards him. And so he panics and decides to turn off the safety on his gun and aim it at the intruder. However, he'd never really used this gun before. He only got it specifically for protection against bears and stuff when they went out camping. And the safety was still on. And he went to try to figure out where the safety was. And as he's doing that, the man had grabbed a wooden baseball bat and hit him full force in the side of his head. Yikes. But one lesson to be learned here is the day you bring home the gun, you need to learn how to work it. Mm Mm-hmm. Even if you think you know. Even if you think it's only against bears. If there's a bear, he's not going to say, oh, no, take your time, man. It's okay. I got all day. Yeah, you think you would know logistically how to do it, but if you haven't used it that much before, in a panic situation, you forget how to fucking dial anything on your phone. You forget the simplest of things. So unless it's muscle memory, yeah, it's probably smart to go to a shooting range. And I don't know if he did that or not. I just know right, he wasn't. Fair enough. Yeah. After he got hit in the head with the baseball bat, he decided, you know what? I can't figure out the safety. I'm just going to retreat and run back towards the front of the house and get outside away from this guy. The guy, still high on meth, is chasing after him, beating him in the back of his head and the side of his head on his neck, shoulder, back, everything he could hit. And finally, after all of the concussive blows to his head, the homeowner just ended up collapsing right in front, right before he reached the front door. Oh my god. 
the intruder decided to climb on top of him, still holding the baseball bat, and starts beating him as hard as he can on the floor. And now he's got nowhere to run. So the homeowner just did the only thing he could think in the moment and had the shotgun in front of him holding it up horizontally so that the baseball bat would at least hit that instead of his head any further. And finally, the guy kind of slowed down a little bit and went to hit him again with the baseball bat. But at this last moment, the guy said, oh, there's the safety, and he found it. However, with all of his injury wounds on his hand from defensively protecting his face and head, his hand, he didn't realize it yet, had been completely just obliterated. The muscles and the bone were all crushed together. So he couldn't even get his thumb to move to turn off the safety. And at this point, in a panic, he had to switch to the other arm so that he could use that hand to turn off the safety. And he got it just in time and fired one shot and hit the man in the torso. And he died pretty immediately after that. Wow. That's just unbelievable. Terrifying. The kind of injuries that it would take to just basically pulverize your hand. Yeah. And I don't know if you can ever fix that. Well, he hasn't fully healed yet. It's one of those things where I think he was almost... He really didn't want to have to use Lilo Force, but he did. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of has been a thing he's talked about a lot is what weighs on him the most is that I didn't want anybody to die in this situation. I knew this man was troubled. I knew he was on drugs, but unfortunately he left me with no choice and he, so did the RCMP. That's right. I mean, the only thing he could have done differently was to let the guy sleep and call the RCMP and wait for them to get there. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that he could have done differently that would have changed the outcome of this. Exactly. And I think... He was so panicked at seeing course, that that I probably wouldn't even realize I had said, what the fuck are you doing here? You know, if I walked in, there's somebody on my bed. He like, probably would have thought the guy would get up and leave. He's holding mm-hmm. a... A shotgun. He's holding a shotgun. Why would he not think the guy would just leave? Mm-hmm. But when you're dealing with addicts or people under the influence of different types of drugs, they mm-hmm. don't always react the way that you think they will. And he's not necessarily under the impression that he broke in here, it sounds like. It sounds like he almost forgot he didn't live there anymore and thought that he was protecting his home or something like that. We're not sure, because obviously we can't get a side of the story in this. Obviously, the homeowner was in the right, but yeah, it's just a lot of badness. Yeah, there's a lot of badness. Man, there's so many things to unpack from this story. I know. So as I told you, the homeowner was badly injured. He had to have multiple surgeries in order to hopefully regain use of his shattered right hand again. And they've done some. He's getting PT and starting to move it a little bit again. It's just not back to fully healed. And he also has lost hearing on the left side of his head where he got the initial baseball bat to the face. Ouch. And he's hoping that comes back, but it seems like it might not. This was over a year ago now. Mm Mm-hmm. And he also struggles greatly with the fact that he was forced to take a life, despite having no choice. And he has spoken out about his disappointment with not necessarily the RCMP, because he realizes there's a protocol in place and that they are more on the, you know, take them in, warn them, and then try to rehabilitate them type of path, rather than take him in, arrest him, lock him away for years, and now he's even more hardened and you have to let him out after so many years. But there must be a third option where they take him in and just hold him until he's not under the influence of methamphetamine anymore. And then like a forced rehab visit? Not even a rehab, just let him be clear-minded when they walk him out the door. Right, because then at least if he's sobered up, you might go, oh, I'm a little bit embarrassed I did that over the weekend. 
you know, I'm just going to hide my face away and then go to that meeting and whatever, the court hearing. And, right. But not if you're on a bender and you just keep hitting more and more and more and more and more drugs, then obviously he never had a chance to sober up. He never yeah. realized he was in the wrong in the situation. Yeah. And was allowed to just torture this family for an entire weekend, essentially. Yeah. Well, and the fact that he could have easily killed the dad. I mean, hitting someone in the head with a baseball bat, that has killed a lot of people in the, in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Just one blow from a baseball bat. Yeah, and he got in the head at least 10 hits. Full force, Superman, not Superman, but you know what I mean, supervillain strength. Have you ever been hit with something hard like that on your head? A hard hit? Maybe, like, with an actual baseball during P.E., but I can't imagine a wooden bat. That I remember the garage door came down on my head. I'm lucky I wasn't paralyzed, because that could easily break Snap your back, your you know, yeah. break, your, break your vertebrae. But you you feel like an impact, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. hear it. Your, your cranium resonates with the impact of that. It's terrible. And it sounds like you almost get into a tunnel vision where it's like, whoo what the fuck just happened like, yeah yeah so i think after 10 hits to the head it's incredible he figured out last minute how to work that gun and shot him one time and that was enough to take him down so yeah good on him for that i did have a quote from the survivor he said if he had been arrested and held instead of released twice he would still be alive and I wouldn't look like this, referring to all of his broken bones and injuries he still has. I agree with him. And he says, I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. And he thinks that that needs to change with the protocol, with the RCMP, and how they handle case-to-case, of course. But right. things like this, obviously this guy was going to keep being a problem until something else was done. I just think it might have made a difference if they had just held him until he came down from his high. Mm-hmm. And he would have gone out and got stoned, you know, he would have used it again as mm-hmm. soon as he got out, probably. Yeah. But like you said, he might have had a moment of clarity and go, what was I doing? I don't mm-hmm. live there anymore. I'm yeah. sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. I did have one last quote from the victim. Sorry, the survivor. He said, you know, one thing I do feel good about is I did everything I could not to pull that trigger to the point of being beaten with a bat repeatedly. And yeah, I agree with him. And it's, it's sad because he really did. You can tell he feels so guilty and he's such a nice guy in all these interviews. And I just, to have him, it should be the job of the police if this needs to be done, if that's the only way to take this person down. It needs to be somebody who's not just a sweet man living in his house who gets attacked that needs to be the one to take down the threat. And I think that's really fucked up for this poor man. Wow, there's a lot to think about from this story. Yeah. Even if we don't know any of their names. Penhold Alberta Home Invasion is probably what I'll call it. Okay. But, you know, I think he did everything he can, and I hope that if he does happen to hear this, we're on his side. We think you did everything you needed to to protect your family, and yeah. of course you're going to have guilt because you're a sweetheart, it sounds like, but yeah. that's all I got. I don't really have a follow-up other than they're healing and in therapy. And well, like you said, it was just a year ago, so, or two mm-hmm. years ago, maybe. About a year and a half, yeah. Well, so that wraps up episode 53. If you have enjoyed our episode, we would appreciate if you could share with someone else you know who might enjoy our content. And you can contact us on all of the social media, except for TikTok. We're not on there. At True Crime BNB. I think that's it, guys. Thank you for being here today. And we will see you again next week. For week 54. That's right. Yay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I got the right microphone. Blah, 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 blah.
only had one sip so far. Oh god. So we're just in the beginning of this downfall. I'm just too... I don't know. It's like I'm a little delicate. How are you on your omeprazole? This is the best sound check ever. <laughs> we're talking about... <laughs> do you want to hear about my bowels? Oh, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not easily flap, flapped. He's not easily flapped. This is the first episode where we have both had showings of an RV. It's our first double RV episode. Welcome to the True Crime B&B RV. <laughs> I mean, you can't make s'mores without a marshmallow. I think I'd just let the bear have a marshmallow. I would too, because I don't really like s'mores. Yeah. I do like chocolate and yeah. graham crackers. Okay, so we'll bring marshmallows as a decoy if we ever go camping. Be like, oh no, don't take our marshmallows. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, we still have a whole bottle of champagne in there. Maybe I can just go drink that out of the bottle. You can.